we encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 will be our focus this morning, but we will be reading verses 1 through 11 because 1 through 4 comes as a, a part of a larger section and we want to we want to see that connectivity as as we read. You can find Philippians chapter 2, of course, in your own copy of the Scriptures in one of the Pew Bibles, or it's also printed on the back side of your order of service if you'd like to follow along there. So this morning we are back to our regularly scheduled programming, if you will. Last week we jumped ahead in Philippians a bit over to chapter 3 in light of Easter Sunday. This morning we go back and now we're continuing our way through this letter and pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago as we finished out chapter 1 and now we begin our way into chapter 2. task of parenting is filled with a range of emotions, isn't it? There is joy in welcoming a new member into the family, either by birth or adoption. There's heartache when you see children, whether young or adult, doing things that you wish they wouldn't, that you know are harmful to them, making unwise decisions. There's the milestones and the combination of joy and also sorrow for perhaps things no longer being the way they once were. Joy in watching children grow and develop. Parenting comes with longings and desires for one's children. And as Paul writes to the church at Philippi, in some ways he writes as their spiritual father. He's the one who worked to establish that church there in Philippi had a long-established relationship with them even after his initial connection with them. And as he looks at his children, if you will, there in Philippi, he sees much to be joyful about, but he also sees that there is conflict and there is infighting. And they are making some unwise decisions. And so as a loving parent, he wants to provide correction. He wants to encourage them in what they are doing well, but he also wants to provide some redirection and point them back again to the life of faithfulness. And as we pick up in the beginning of chapter 2, we're really continuing on with where he turned at the end of chapter 1. So although it's not printed in your bulletin, I want to back up to to verse 27 of chapter 1 and read through chapter 2, verse 11, and hear the Apostle Paul's appeal to these his children in the faith. 
Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, and then continuing to chapter 2, verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come before You once again this morning, Father, we do, as we have already prayed, we thank You for the opportunity to gather, to sing Your praises together. Father, to have the the gift of considering Your words to us together. Father, we pray that You would be pleased to use Your Word in the life of our church. We pray that You would be pleased to use Your Word in our individual lives this morning. Father, we pray that our thoughts and our our responses would be in keeping with what the Apostle Paul has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray that You would guard the teaching, guard our our thoughts. Father, we pray that the fruit of our attending to this set of verses this morning would be Your glory and our growth in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are a number of of ways we could talk about the appeal, if you will, of this passage. Uh, But the point that that I want to emphasize is really the way the Apostle Paul communicates a main idea that is kind of the main idea and kind of not the main idea of the passage. And this is what I mean. This is what I mean. This passage gives for us an example of full gospel joy. Full gospel gospel joy. 
And that comes from what the Apostle Paul says as his main command in verse 2. Complete my joy or make my joy full. This is the main command, but really his concern is not just for himself, but as we will see, his concern is for the Philippians, for their full gospel joy, for their growth in Christ's likeness. But Paul gives both by his own example here in this appeal, complete my joy, and in the directions that he gives to them, what their lives together are to look like. He gives us a picture of full gospel joy characterized in three ways. And these three things that I would like for us to see are, one, that full gospel joy is others-oriented. Full gospel joy is oriented towards others. Full gospel joy is tied together or knit together. There is a fundamental togetherness of complete gospel joy. And then lastly, full gospel joy is divinely derived. Divinely derived. So it's others-oriented. It is together tied or tied together. It is divinely derived. Let's see how it is that complete or full gospel joy is, first of all, others-oriented. This comes in part by what the Apostle Paul says. He asks them, he commands them, complete or fill my joy. The way in which you can fulfill or bring about my fullness of joy is by doing these things, taking into account these things. Now on the surface, this sounds rather self-interested, doesn't it? You know what you can do to make me happy? Here's what you can do to give me even more and more joy. It sounds like maybe Paul is kind of just looking out for numero uno. But that's really not the case. In this language, what he does, as one commentator writes, is he reflects his pastoral heart. Because if you step back and you think about how he says how they can complete his joy, it really has nothing to do with him. And this is a congregation that has faithfully supported him time and time again over the years. It's one of the reasons why he writes this very letter is because of their support for him in his present difficulty as he writes from prison. And so here, as he writes, complete my joy, he is giving for them an encouragement to look beyond themselves. To look beyond their own concerns and let he lets them know what some of the deepest desires that he has for them. But it is interesting, again, that he, as he writes, complete my joy, he doesn't say you can do it by doing these particular things for me, but by attending to your congregational life together. This is what 
I desire for you. When Paul writes that command, complete my joy, the word there is the same word that is used elsewhere to mean fill up or fulfill. It's the same word that Matthew uses in his Gospel over and over and over to say that the things that came about in Jesus' life came about to fulfill, to bring to completion all that was written in the Old Testament. And here Paul says the way that the Philippians can bring about his joy with respect to their congregational life, his joy to the fullest, is by being others-oriented. So that full gospel joy resists self-absorption. Being joyful in the work of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us does not lead to a turning inward on ourselves. Instead, joy in Christ and His work for us resists that natural inclination to simply be absorbed about our own little world, our own little universe, our own little domain. And we see this in multiple ways in this passage. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Paul has used this this word previously back over in chapter 1. Remember how he talked about the preaching of others. He categorized the preaching of others along two different lines as he was aware of it in connection with him. He said there were those who were were motivated and encouraged by his predicament to preach with boldness, to preach the Gospel with sincerity. He also says that there are others who have an entirely different motivation. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not genuinely out of concern for others, but only out of self-interest do they preach Christ. This selfish ambition is described, is identified in Galatians 5 as part of our Sinful trajectory. The, the, the category, the, the group of things that characterizes living according to our sinful inclinations in contrast to the way that the Spirit brings about response to the work of Christ in our ongoing lives. And what is the result of this self-absorption, this Selfish ambition, only concerned for me and my own. James, in chapter 3, verse 16, writes, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, what will be the result? There will be disorder and every vile practice. So put those pieces together. The Apostle Paul is telling the Philippian church to put away, to do nothing, whatever they do individually as believers, to not be motivated by ambition for self. 
And looking to James, we see that if they are only concerned about themselves and what they want and what they think will be in their own best interest, the result in their congregational life will be disorder, will be chaos, will not be what He has called them to, to stand firm in the faith together for the Gospel. A pursuit of my own interests does not serve the congregation well. And that goes true for all of us. So that full gospel joy is not directed at what I want. Myself exclusively. But it has other concerns. He goes on, doesn't he? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. King James translates this word vainglory. Another way of speaking about desire for self. It's, it means a vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. Thinking highly of one's self. And then also there in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Not only to his own interests. Elsewhere, Paul describes Timothy in, later on in chapter 2 as unlike others who Timothy is not concerned about his own interests. But he's concerned about the interests of the Philippians and, and others. We see similar appeals in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes that beautiful chapter of love, one of the things that he writes about love is that it is not conceited. It is not pursuing vain glory. But instead, instead, full gospel joy is others-oriented. So far, what have we seen? We've seen the, the negative side of the coin, haven't we? The opposing of our natural inclination to simply be concerned about ourselves. But Paul flips the coin to the other side and says that full gospel joy gives regard to others. It gives regard to others. Verse 3, once again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves in humility consider others in humility sometimes in scripture humility refers to physical circumstances social status being of low estate if you will but other places it has more of a spiritual connotation and an emphasis on perspective of oneself. And of course, that's what Paul's emphasis is here. It is how one regards themselves. How one regards themselves. But, it's important that when we think about humility, that it's important that we note what Paul is not saying. He is not telling the believers to beat themselves up, to drive themselves low, to simply 
say, woe is me, I am terrible, there is nothing good in me at all whatsoever. Because there is a way in which that kind of attitude is actually a distortion of pride. That is, exalting myself because I will verbally say things so bad about myself. And Paul doesn't want the believers, the Philippian believers, to be beating themselves up. Rather, he wants them to have a sober and accurate evaluation of who they are. And this is a two-sided coin for the believer. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are in desperate need of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, apart from the work of God's grace in our lives, we do have nothing good to offer. But friends, if God is at work in your life, then you have the presence of the Spirit enabling you to live a godly life enabling you to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, which we saw two weeks ago, that gospel-worthy living. Humility is not beating ourselves down. Humility is having a sober and accurate evaluation of who we are. Not thinking too highly of ourselves, it also includes not abusing ourselves. Not because of who we are, again, but because of God's grace. Because of God's kindness to us. You see, I can, I can go in this direction because the Lord Jesus described Himself with this very term. gentle and lowly or humble in heart. Matthew 11.29 Jesus had an accurate evaluation of who He was. But He did not use that to His own self-advantage, did He? Instead, what did He do? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And this is part of the reason why the Apostle Paul is going to go where he goes in verses 5 and following. He gives us the perfect picture of humility in the gift of Christ for you and me. So that he can tell the Philippians, don't think too highly of yourselves, but regard yourself with a soberness of mind... And in doing so, regard others and their significance. Regard others and their significance. In humility, count or regard others more significant than yourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is going to use this same idea about how Christ regarded His equality with God and laid it aside in order to take on the form of a servant. Over in chapter 3, verse 7, part of the passage we looked at last week, 
Paul talks about how he evaluates his own potential claims to righteousness. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I regarded as loss for the sake of Christ. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, regard them as rubbish. He's talking about here how they think about others. That they need to give their attention to the concern of others. So that, in verse 4, what does He say? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I referenced Timothy earlier. Listen to chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. For I have no one like him, that is, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And Timothy is the example of the good servant who looks out for the interests of others. Here's the thing, though. As we talk about being filled with gospel joy and that overflowing to being concerned about others and what's in their best interest and what's, what's going to be for their good, it's easy to talk about this. It's easy to stand up here and talk about the fact that the Apostle Paul tells them not to think about themselves, but to think about one another. It's easy to sit and think about the fact that, yeah, I, I, I should be concerned about what's in the best interest of, of my neighbor and those sitting next to me in the pew and not absorbed with just what I want in the life of the church. It's easy to talk about but it's difficult to realize. Because when the rubber meets the road, and we engage in conversations about this aspect of church life, or this particular ministry in the church, it's easy for me not to have my ears open and hear the perspective of others and hear what would be in others' best interests and only be looking for that opportunity to inject my priorities, my desires, my wishes, and to pound the drum of me, me, me so that things look the way I want them to look. And here, friends, I'm not talking about discussions related to to doctrine, right? Those things are, are settled and we are to be of one mind on what we believe. But here, what I'm talking about is the way that we do church life together, the way that we walk together in the Christian life, some of the things that we may do, some of the things that we may not do. We need to be sure that as we evaluate those things, as we advocate for those things, as we think about what is our church life going to look like moving forward, we need to be careful that we are not simply concerned about what I want and what I, the way I think things ought to be. 
Either because of the way they were or in contrast to the way they were. We need to be moving forward together, all of us motivated by what will be in our best interests together. And this only works. This only works if we do this together. If we are all aspiring to concern for one another's best interests and what is what is in our best interest your best interest my best interest in the end isn't what i want right so that you need to be listening to what i want and that's in my best i i get my best interest wrong we all do don't we what is in our best interests? I would say, in short, it is to become more like Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, isn't it? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And what is that good that all things work together for for those who love God? He goes on in verse 29 to say what that good is. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. There it is, conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what the good is for us that God is working all things towards if our hope is in Christ. And in the end, that is what is in your best interest and my best interest growing to become more like Christ. And we can also add, because isn't this the very picture that the Apostle Paul is giving the Philippians in this letter? To walk like Christ. To serve like Christ. To have the mind of Christ. So the question that presses in on us is, how can we be concerned for pursuing in one another's lives and for one another's good, one another's growth in Christ's likeness. And how can we do this together? Not just concerned about me, but concerned about others. Jesus critiqued the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day. On this very point, repeatedly he points to the fact that what are they concerned about? They're concerned about being recognized by others. They're concerned about making sure that they have the places of authority. They're concerned about people knowing that they are the rabbis and, and being called rabbi. He gives that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. 
where the Pharisee is just completely self-absorbed. Thank you, God, that I am not like that person over there. The Apostle Paul says, the followers of Christ are not to be inwardly oriented, but are to be outwardly oriented for the good of others. Relatedly, relatedly, he says that full gospel joy is others-oriented and it is tied together. It is knit together. Now, this is like last week. I probably should have prefaced it, but this is like last week in that there's more meat to that first point than these other two. Okay, So if you're getting a little anxious, don't worry, these next two will be a bit, will be, not a bit, they will be briefer, okay? But as Paul appeals to these Philippians to be other or others oriented, he says that uh, that also includes being tied, being united, being knit together. Notice in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That is, having a common perspective. Having a common outlook. And we might put together what we've just observed and this and say, having a common outlook that what we need to be about is faithful gospel living so that we might all grow together in Christ's likeness. Isn't this the picture that Paul gives of the church in Ephesians 4? The body serving together in one direction until the body reaches unity in the faith. Having this shared orientation, this shared perspective, but also having the same love. Part of the love that Paul is referring to here is love that he mentions back in verse 1 that we haven't touched on yet. We're going to here in just a moment. But also, that same love that he calls them to is a common love for one another. Romans 13. Romans 13 puts it this way. As Paul is writing about the congregational life of the church in Rome, he reminds them, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And as we will see, this love is a sacrificial giving for the good of others. And then also, being in full accord. Being in full accord. Here, it's the same thing that he called them back to. It's masked a bit in our, our English translations, but back in verse 27 of chapter 1, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Together in soul is literally what Paul says. He's calling them to a unity. Why? Because of what we read elsewhere in Scripture. The cord of three strands is not easily broken. And if 
these believers are going to remain faithful in the context in which they live, if they are going to remain faithful individually and together, given the opposition that they are facing from the outside, then they must be firmly committed to one another and with a shared perspective of where they are going and what their witness should be in their community. Full Gospel joy overflows into a concern for others, especially other brothers and sisters in Christ and their growth in Christ-likeness. Full Gospel joy overflows to a commitment to the life of the congregation together as it lives and breathes in its community to be a Gospel witness. But full Gospel joy, where does it stem from? The Apostle Paul says in the beginning of this section that it is divinely derived it is divinely derived you know we really haven't talked about verse 1 at all yet but verse 1 in the language provides the the impetus provides the motivation provides the energy for this others oriented perspective for this commitment to being tied together. Notice what he writes. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, then do these things. So, if... If there's that encouragement, that comfort, that participation, then be others-oriented. Then be committed together in pursuing your congregational life together. But notice how he says that this foundation, this motivation for commitment to congregational unity and the good of one another is... Because of the Christian's experience of what God has done. Here's what I mean. Notice it's, it's easiest to see, most apparent, if there is any encouragement or consolation in Christ. Friend, if you know the Lord Jesus and you've walked through a difficult time, perhaps in your family or at work, or perhaps you've been in a church that has walked through a difficult season, not everything is always rosy in congregational life, is it? Have you known the consolation Have you known the encouragement that even in this, I am still Christ's 
and He is mine. That even though my circumstances are shouting a different message to me, the good news of the Gospel remains true, and Christ has secured my eternity, come what may in this life. Have you known that comfort, that encouragement in Christ? That's the kind of encouragement that the Apostle Paul is pointing these believers to here. But not only does he talk about encouragement or consolation in Christ, he talks about the participation or the fellowship in the Spirit. Have you known the enablement, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live with joy, to live with a peace of heart, even though the world is turning upside down? Have you known the empowerment, the the participation of the Spirit to stay committed to what you know is right, even though worldly pressures are pressing in on you to... Do something that you ought not do. To deny the truth. To go in some ungodly way. Have you known the fellowship, the participation of the Spirit to remain steadfast even though the headwinds of the world are against you? This is the fellowship of the Spirit that Paul writes about here. Have you known the comfort of Christ and His death and resurrection? Have you known the fellowship of the Spirit as you walk by faith in this life? Do you hear where this is going? The the Son and the Spirit? And I would contend, as with others, that the comfort from love that He speaks about in this group of three is the very love of God the Father. Because this is how Paul most, most often times when he refers to love, he's referring to the love of the Father. Here, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3.14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so what is he doing here as he appeals to these believers to pursue their gospel-worthy living? He asks them, or he points it to them, have you known the encouragement, the consolation of Christ? Have you known the love of God displayed especially in the sacrifice of Christ? Have you known the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as you walk in a troubled world? If you have, if you have received all of these things from our triune God, then friend, that enables us to turn our attention outward. Because just as we have been loved and are continually loved, by the triune God, so we are empowered 
to love and serve one another and live for the good of others. And for the Philippians, this was to put to death the contention that was stirring in their midst. And I'm not particularly concerned about any contention stirring within our midst congregationally. But if we want to know how we as a congregation would walk together in the way that God the Father would have us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and reflecting by our lives the Lord whom we claim, then our Gospel joy will overflow into being oriented not in on ourselves, but towards others. By being committed to our congregational life together. And by drawing continually from the well of the gifts of the triune God to us that become ours as we trust Christ and walk with Him by faith. So that if you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, full Gospel joy can be yours by turning to Christ. Because it is only in Christ that this peace is found. It is only in Christ that this other's orientation can be found. It is only in Christ that a commitment to the good of Christ's people can be found. It is only in Christ that a right relationship with God can be found by repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, call out to Him. I would love to talk with you when we're done about what it means to follow Christ by faith. But if you're here this morning and you're striving to follow Christ, I'm so thankful for a congregation that in many, many ways shows the other's orientation and the commitment to community, the being tied together that the Apostle Paul calls the Philippians to here. But we always need reminders that this is the way in which we should continue to walk. And this is the way in which we should grow in our walking together. And so where for you, where for me, is a step this week that we need to take, that you need to take, that I need to take to pursue the good of others even beyond my own interests and my own good? Where do you need this week to take a step in advancing your commitment to our congregational togetherness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to You one one more time in prayer this morning. Father, thank You 
that the Lord Jesus Christ has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Father, it is a joy to know the forgiveness of sins by Your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, every other world religion declares, do this, make make sure you tick off all these boxes, make sure you avoid all of these other things in hopes that maybe possibly you might one day be accepted. Father, that breeds, that kind of perspective breeds only a self-orientation. But Father, thank You for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives to us a picture not of do this and live, but of it has been done. So come and live. And as it has been freely given, so also freely give. Father, thank You that the message of the Gospel, that the work of Christ on our behalf provides the only possible way of redemption that there can be. But not only does it provide the only possible way of redemption, but it also provides for us direction for how we should be servant-driven followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, following in the footsteps of the One who has given Himself for us. Father, we pray that You would help us Help us to see where it is that we have need and room to grow in how we might be more concerned in what would be in the best interest and in particular for the growth in Christ-likeness of others. Help us see, Father, how we as a congregation might with more and more fervency be committed to our congregational corporate life together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.